These days, a lot of people are learning about the benefits of fasting, like weight loss, mental and physical performance, gut health, but they worry about the whole not eating part. Well, that's exactly why Prolon was created. Prolon is a revolutionary plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe they're fasting, giving you all the benefits. This has been researched and developed for decades at the University of Southern California Longevity Institute and backed by leading U.S. medical centers. Prolon helps promote healthy blood sugar, support cardiovascular health, and reduce abdominal fat. But Prolon isn't a diet, it's science. Science based on Nobel Prize winning discoveries in medicine. And it all starts with Prolon's five-day program. Snacks, soups, beverages all designed to keep your body in a fasting state. If I was going to start a nutrition program, Prolon is exactly what I'd use. Convenience backed by Nobel-winning science that works. Right now, Prolon is offering Beyond the To-Do List listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash beyond. That's P-R-O-L-O-N-L-I-F-E dot com slash beyond for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash beyond. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Kieran Setia. He is the philosophy section head at the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT. He's got a brand new book out called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And recently, I have been guesting on a number of other podcasts. In fact, if you'd like me to join you on yours, go to beyondthetodolist.com and click the contact button up in the corner and shoot me a message. I'd love to join you. But I have found that there is one common question that keeps getting brought up when I am guesting on these podcasts, which is, what is your definition of the word productivity? Now, I'm not going to dive too deep into that right now. I want you to listen to some of those episodes as I share them on social. But let's just say, for me, productivity is about living well. That is the overarching theme of it. It's about dealing with the burnout. It's about having better priorities. It is managing our time and letting our time not run us and not be so filled with tasks that we forget to live. And it's and again, it's about living well. And so this conversation with Kieran is all about living well. It's all about not just thinking about ourselves and our own pain and loneliness or failure or grief, but being able to connect with other people, coping with adversity in our own lives as well as lives around us. We can all admit there's been a lot more stress in our lives recently, over the past few years especially, and how some of the philosophical approach can help us with that, with whether we have disabilities or infirmities or we've had failure in our lives, which we've all had, or loneliness and grief that there's a value to human life and there's a value to living life well. And in this conversation with Kieran, I think you're going to find a path forward, even if it's just sparked by this conversation. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Kieran Setia. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Kieran Setia. Kieran, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I was very interested when I got 
wind of your book, not only that, but just your profession, your position even is probably a better way to put it. Your philosophy section head at the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy, that's a mouthful, at MIT. How long have you been doing that position? So I moved to MIT in 2014. Before then, I was at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Philosophy there. And I took over as section head this is my second year, so it's I'm still on the steep part of the learning curve, but it's starting to flatten out a little bit. Okay. So I think the other thing is that people are wondering, why are we talking about philosophy on a productivity podcast? And to me, it's kind of obvious. I definitely like philosophy. It permeates things. For you, what's your definition of the word philosophy before we move forward here? Oh, man, starting with the small questions. I mean, philosophy <laughs> as a whole is, I mean, one way to think about it is historically that in the in the beginning, so in, in the early Western tradition, philosophy encompassed all attempts at systematic knowledge. And then the sciences, you know, carve off at different points, you know, physics pretty early on, biology, then psychology, linguistics and computer science in the 20th century. And philosophy is the home of the questions that are left over when the sciences peel off. And one of those questions, and the one I really work on is, how should we live our lives? This sort of basic ethical question. And what I'm most interested in is how to make philosophical reflection on that question practical, how to connect the tradition of thinking philosophically that goes back, you know, 2,500 years to the actual practical problems that I found myself facing and my friends facing about parenthood and the shape of our lives and career and regret and failure and I think philosophy has a lot to offer to those questions, but it, the connections are not always made. So there's your answer. Why a lot of a lot of those topics that you just were naming are things that are kind of those spokes off the wheel that I talk about in the show or get to talk to experts about for the show and get to go to all those different places because they're beyond just the everyday to-do list. And so it's a really interesting conversation to be had to allow or apply the layer of actual philosophy over that day-to-day, -day, you know, friction of life. Exactly. And it's been useful to me both in my own life and in sort of forging connections outside of academic philosophy with people like you, but also just with readers of books who write and say, this was helpful or this wasn't helpful, sort of begin a conversation that connects the academic discipline that I was trained in with a wider audience of people who face the same kinds of questions about how to live and how to organize their lives and want to reflect about them seriously. Mm -hmm. So let's get into this a little bit. I, I think that one of the best ways to do this is, I know you have a brand new book out. It's called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. But before we jump into that, I want to actually kind of set some context with your previous book, Midlife. In that book, you talk about this sense of emptiness and regret that you say tends to hit each of us when I guess we're about our age right now, middle age. So talk a little bit about, you know, where did the idea for that book come from and what, what's the premise there? Well, I feel the answer is not that surprising in a way, which is it came out of my own experience, which is that around, <laughs> you know, th actually early for a midlife crisis, 35, 40, I hit this sort of plateau in which I had been striving for 20 years in academia sort of structured like this to get a PhD, get a job, get tenure. And all of that seemed worth doing, but it, my head was down sort of working on 
getting through those projects, getting through those steps. And then I stepped back and took a breath and thought, what am I doing? I looked at the future and imagined just finishing the class I was teaching, teaching another class. I'd work really hard to publish this paper, then that would be done. And I guess I would work really hard on publishing another paper. And if I worked really, really hard, it would be, you know, a certain number I would publish in my lifetime. And if I worked a little less hard, it would be a smaller number. And there was a sense in which I couldn't quite, it did, it's not that it seemed worthless, but there was a kind of emptiness at the heart of it and a sense of limitation and being in a way trapped in my own life. And I thought, well, this is very puzzling. I'm doing things that I still think are worth doing. It's going by objective standards pretty well. Why am I unhappy? And I thought, well, that is a question about the good life. It's a question about how to live. And it's a very intellectually puzzling one, as well as an emotionally challenging one. And so I did the the judo move of saying, well, maybe if I use you know philosophy to attack my own problem with my life as a philosopher, I can get somewhere. And that's how I ended up writing this book, Midlife, which is about not just my midlife crisis and not just one kind of midlife crisis, but an attempt to anatomize some of the experiences we have at this midlife, mid-career moment of coming to terms with the past and feelings of frustration and emptiness in the present and the sense that the future is finite and we have a, a kind of horizon ahead that we're, we're beginning to understand that, that sort of distance to, to mortality. And it's not just about choices that have been made versus choices that have not been made and the you know, the opportunity cost, if you're familiar with that, and just for the sake of explaining that, opportunity cost is basically you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to every other thing in that realm of choice. And so you can only say yes. You know, it, it's kind of like a um, a flowchart. If this, then that. Well, it is this or yes to this. Well, you, you're not going down the other path on the flowchart then unless you start over from the beginning and, you know, reincarnation, et cetera. But um, yes. <laughs> or to put it in more modern like vernacular, FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, you could have that at every given moment with every single choice. Should I have cereal or eggs this morning? Should I have this or this? Should I call that person or not? call? You know, and that can be crazy making. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of what a kind of step towards coming to terms with that, I kind of think of it as existential FOMO. It's not about the party I missed tonight. It's more like the whole life I could have had if I'd chosen a different major in college or if I hadn't gone to college or if I'd stuck with, you know, playing piano or, or if I'd become a doctor. That's for me because my dad was a doctor and that's what he wanted me to do. That's always the go to. When I think of the alternative life, that's the one that looms large. I think a step towards coming to terms with that that's useful is a recognition of how pervasive and how inevitable it is. That just the fact that if you'd made the other choice, then this life would be the thing you are now looking wistfully at and thinking, oh, I could have, uh, I could have been a philosopher. I could have, you know, there's a certain inevitability to it. And I think that helps to recognize that it's not a sign that you've made any kind of mistake, that you feel this kind of missing out or regret. I think the second thing that I think philosophy can help us do to come to terms with it is to understand where that experience comes from. So it's useful to contrast. There are choices that don't generate this where you deal with what philosophers sometimes call commensurable goods. So if someone says to you, I'll give you 50 bucks or 100 bucks, and you say, I'll have the 100 bucks, you're not going to be stricken with FOMO. Like, but I could have had that 50 bucks instead because you got that and another 50. And the point is, most decisions are not like that. Most decisions involve a plurality of goods. They involve different kinds of good things. So this experience of missing out 
what it's a function of is the diversity of good things that the world offers us and our capacity to be able to appreciate them, which means that even when things go well, A, we're going to miss out on some good things, and B, we can't really, in the end, regret the fact that we experience missing out, because the only way to avoid it would be to either impoverish the world or impoverish ourselves so much that we just can't appreciate all those other options. And we don't want that. We actually want to be, rightly, the kind of people who can appreciate not just a narrow range of things, but all the other things we're missing out on. And I think that way of reframing this experience, for me at least, is a, is a helpful way to, to come to accept it as not something that you can, there's no trick to avoiding it, but there is a, a kind of cognitive reframing that can make it seem less negative and more a way of revealing the, the kind of value of the world. Yeah, there is this kind of recent permeation of the word multiverse or, you know, all these different choices. In this world, I'm a this. And in this world, this is how it works. And in and all of that, there is a, a recent film that got 11 Oscar nominations, everything, everywhere, all at once. I love this film. It came out a year ago. At the time of this recording right now, it's gotten 11 Oscar nominations. We don't know how it does on any of those, but the message or the plot, et cetera, of that movie deals with exactly this. In my mind, it has to do with this macro level. If you could see into all these other universes where you are someone different or you made a different choice, et cetera, how that would affect you, especially if you're holding all of the knowledge of all those versions of yourself in your singular person right now and how that carries a toll. It's very interesting. I mean, so first, I haven't seen the movie, but now enough people have told me, including you, that I have to see the movie. Yes. That it's clear I have to see this movie. I mean, I think the point about knowledge you just made is really fascinating to me, because I think one of the things that plays a central role in our sense of missing out and our relationship to alternative possibilities is how much we know about them. So one of the reasons why the sense of missing out that you have at midlife is more challenging, I think, than often the experience of choice earlier on is that now you know what you're missing out on. Whereas, I mean, it, it was always true. It was true when I was 15 that I was going to pick some kind of life path and it would exclude lots of other things. But at that point, I wasn't really tortured by it. I don't think that's just because I was young and callow. I think it's because I didn't know which one it was going to be. And what really tortures you, what really gets you is not just the fact that there are lives you can never live and you wish you had more capacity for that. It's knowing which ones you're missing out on. I mean, this connects to something else that I think is related to our experience of regret is actually the more we really know about what we're missing out on, often the harder it is to come to terms with it. Like mm. if you, if what you're dealing with is sort of a vague caricature of some other life, what you have in your own life is kind of intimate knowledge of all the particular people and activities that you're connected with. And actually leaning into that knowledge and not sort of stepping back and looking at things in caricature can be very affirming. It can be a source of, of connection. And we typically don't have that with other lives. But it sounds like in the movie, one of the things that makes this challenging might be suddenly knowing much more about what those other lives might have been. And then all the particular things in them can start to eat away at you. And yeah, that's a, it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. And I'm trying not to, I don't want to spoil it for you or anyone else listening that hasn't watched it other than I'm going to reiterate, 
it's one of my favorite movies that's come out in a very long time. And it's definitely sci-fi meets philosophy and it's well worth your time. In fact, I think they've probably re-released it in theaters at this point in different oh, really? places okay. just to, to go well, see it. Because of the, the Oscar buzz? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's out there to rent and stream as well. So I will definitely make sure to link that up in the show notes for this episode, by the way, because I really do think it's one of the movies that has blown my mind. You know, if I can use that phrase, that's probably undercutting what it really is. Like, because, because it's not just about thoughts. It's about feelings. It's about acknowledging things that are true. It's anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to gush too much about the movie. Anyways, it really does apply here though. But what I want to get into a little bit now is, is, is your book, your brand new book. So life is hard. And a lot of people are like, yeah, it is. Others are like, <laughs> Aren't you being a little harsh, just for lack of a better term? Aren't you creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by calling life hard, right? I mean, I think that there's a thing about the book, I could say, which is although it's called Life is Hard, it's not a downer. And part of what I like about the phrase life is hard is that although it's negative, it's also a thing we say to each other in a kind of knowing, slightly jokey way, like, you know, life is hard. So I think that the way of relating to the difficulties of life that I want us to inculcate is a kind of realism that has a little irony and a little humor in it. It's not, it's not bleak. It's not sort of reveling in the difficulties of life. But I think that the central point here is that it's just not really possible to, in the end, live a good life without coming to terms with the ways in which life is difficult for ourselves and for other people. There's no way to avoid them. We all face infirmity at some point, if it, even if it's just the incremental infirmities of aging. Mm. We all have periods of loneliness. We all face grief in relation to people we love. We all have failures in our lives. We all see the injustice of the world and, and kind of other people who are in, who are suffering. And I think a key insight is that living well involves acknowledgement of that. So you know, here's an anecdote that I, I often use to illustrate this is sometimes you go to someone about a problem in your life. You know, it could be at work or in a relationship or you have a health scare and they immediately go into assurance advice mode. They say, it's all going to be fine. Here's what you do. And it's not consoling. And it's not consoling because it's a way of denying or disavowing what you're going through. And what we need in those moments first is acknowledgement, the patience to sit with what's actually happening. And I think that kind of recognition, just patient acknowledgement of and paying attention to difficulty, A, it's a source of consolation in itself. It's, it helps you come to terms with things. And B, it's the only way in which we can then figure out how to orient ourselves towards the difficulties in our lives. We have to actually know what we're facing and ac accept what we're facing, not in the sense of giving into it, but understanding it before we can figure out how to feel about it and what to do about it. So I, you know, I see the risks of, of dwelling too much on the negatives in life, but I'm, I suppose I'm more worried about the risks of turning away from them, which mm -hmm. is understandable. It's not easy to think about the difficulties in life, but the more we turn away from them, I think the less we can cope with them and the more we distance ourselves from other people. So you're saying it's it's less about a dwelling on it and more of about a, an acknowledgement of it, because at any moment, if we say that it's not, we're either denying past hardship in our own lives or the inevitability that it will be, because again, even for our own mortality's sake, there is some hardship coming and we're, we may just not be paying attention or, or naive about it. No, exactly. I think that there's a real risk of not acknowledging our own experience because we don't want to dwell on, on difficulty and we're not comfortable sitting with it. But I think thinking about it in terms of relationships is also helpful because one of the dangers is that we'll limit our own intimacy 
to other people and their intimacy with us by not being able to sit with and acknowledge the difficulties they're going through. So I think it, it's both in relation to ourselves and in relation to other people that you're not really going to be able to connect with other people unless you're able to take in what they tell you when they tell you things are, are difficult. So it's not being taken by surprise when life is hard, especially when it's with other people, because then we don't jump into that pat answer mode. We can sit with them and live not just through it, but in it, in the moment, being present in the moment with them. Yeah, absolutely. And and having someone say to you, yeah, that seems hard. I get what you're going through. I'm starting to understand it now that you explain it to me. That's already itself a kind of significant consolation. So I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book in my own experience was that I have a chronic pain condition that was sort of started having when I was 27. It's chronic pelvic pain. It, it's one of those diagnoses in scare quotes that names the symptom. It's not actually an explanation of anything, and there isn't really a reliable treatment. And the sheer fact of talking to people about it, even before any change in my life, sort of in the experience of it, is a kind of, of consolation. And the same thing I experience when I read other people talking about other kinds of chronic pain, that there's, there's the consolation of someone else recognizing the difficulty you're going through. And I think that's not the end of the story. It's not that then you don't try to do something about it. But that is a kind of key moment of connection that I think we really should cherish. Yeah. I mean, that right there, what you're talking about kind of goes to one of the main through lines you have in the book. There's a number of other ones and we can talk about, we can jump on to those at different points, but one of them you talk about is infirmity and varying levels of disability and that they don't need to be an obstacle to living well, which actually saying living well out loud makes me think we should jump back to the beginning and say, in the book you talk about, there's a difference between feeling happy and living well. And I'm curious, what are your definitions of those two? Like, what are the similarities and differences in the definitions there? That's a great question. I mean, and there's lots to say sort of packed into what you just said. Let's start with one thing, which is, yeah, this this key distinction. I think that one way to, to see the contrast is to to think of being happy as a state of mind. It's about feeling happy. And you could be happy in the sense of feeling happy while being completely out of touch with reality. So speaking of sci-fi movies, the movie philosophers always point to here is The Matrix. Right. In that matrix is complicated because lots of people are plugged in. But in the simplest case, you just imagine someone plugged into a simulation. They don't know they're plugged in. They're the only person plugged in. It's feeding them a stream of experiences that seems like a wonderful life. They're perfectly happy, but they're barely living a life at all because they're not in touch with reality. Whereas, so that's being happy. Living well, it's not that it's about being unhappy, but it's a condition of living well that you're living in reality, living in the world as it is, not the world as you wish it would be. You're kind of connecting with the, the real world. And so I think that's where this this facing up to the difficulties of life, although it can be painful, is inextricable from, from living well. That living well involves a kind of acknowledgement that sometimes is uncomfortable. And you see that most vividly if you step away from these thought experiments and things like the experience of grief, where it's clear that there's unhappiness in grief. But you wouldn't say, oh, well, that's just bad. I wish I didn't have that unhappiness because it, it's bound up with the experience of human connection, with the experience of love, and that it's part of living well that you recognize loss when you experience loss. And that, again, that's a more mundane way than the kooky simulation thought experiment where you're plugged into a machine in which you can just begin to see this contrast between 
just how you feel, feel happy or not, and how your life is going, whether you're living a kind of good enough life. This is another point which you could it'd be easy to misunderstand my view as suggesting that happiness doesn't matter. It's more that happiness is something we achieve in a way as a side effect of trying to grapple with the world as well as we can. Happiness is a byproduct of living well. Exactly. It may not always be present, but it is uh, genuine happiness would come out of truly living well, which is acknowledging truth and and living with that. I mean, I'm glad you brought up The Matrix because I, I, I always I – mean, that's one of the, the great philosophical films right there. And uh, yeah, I, I can't help but think about – you know I forget what his name is, but he's sitting there and he's like, now if I bite this steak and all that kind of stuff, my mouth tells yeah, me yeah, it's real. Cypher. And, this, is, Cypher. this is the same – yeah, yeah. This is a scene I show often when I'm teaching students about th- this kind of distinction, that moment where he says, you know, why don't I just plug back in? And and there are certain kinds of things, like maybe the experience of the taste of food. It isn't very important whether it's real steak or simulated steak. But when it comes to the experience of connection with another human being, it matters whether it's another human being or a bot. You know, it's genuine contact with reality that people miss when they just plug in. Yeah. And, and that's funny because, I mean, when that movie came out, we couldn't have even considered where we would end up going with all of social media and all of that. And, you know, and we call it social networking. We call it social media, but it r- really ends up being a lot of media pushed around and not so much the social. No, that's totally right. And I think it's there's lots to say about why our relationship to other people, even when there are other people on the other side of the social media platform, is distorted by social media. So another key distinction in Life is Hard, or key idea, is that it's a real risk to think about what your life in terms of idealized visions of what a the you know the best life would be. And the the kind of slogan, you know, find your bliss, live your best life, those slogans which connect to have a kind of long history in philosophy. If you go back to ancient Greek philosophers, Plato in the Republic doesn't say, here's how to fight injustice. He says, here's what a utopian city might look like. Or Aristotle, Plato's student in the ethics says, let's start by describing the ideal life where you don't have any problems and no deficiencies, no human need. And those are not good models with which to approach your own life, both because they're not practical and because they're models with which you'll just beat yourself up, and which is what happens when people are presented with these idealized visions on social media. So that's another kind of way to frame why it's important to begin by thinking about the difficulties of life, again, not to dwell on the difficulties, but to recognize that the goal of living a good enough life in the circumstances, that's a kind of humane goal to set ourselves and a realistic goal to set ourselves. I love my dogs like I love my children. I care about them, well, one more than the other, but we won't get into that. But I am committed to giving them both the best. And if you feel that way too, like your dog is a member of the family, then you've got to serve them top quality food that they deserve. Serve them Nom Nom. Nom Nom's made with 100% premium ingredients. That means zero fillers or funky stuff. My dogs love these great tasting meals. And their nutritional needs are different than ours. That's why Nom Nom's nutrient-packed recipes are developed by board-certified veterinary nutritionists. Freshly made and shipped free to your door. Right now, you can get a 50% no-risk two-week trial at trinom.com slash beyond. Say goodbye to boring dog food. Your dog deserves a real 
reason to run to their bowl every single meal, every single day. And all dogs are individuals, so they deserve to be served like it. Nom Nom delivers freshly made dog food personalized to your dog's preferences and unique caloric needs. And again, 100% premium ingredients, no funky stuff. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash beyond. That's trynom.com slash beyond for 50% off. Trynom.com slash beyond. When it comes to hiring, don't search for great talent. Match with them thanks to Indeed. With Indeed, you can ditch that busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Indeed leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, making their matching engine your go-to because it's constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use it, the better it gets. I used to be involved giving my input into the hiring process for a few key roles that were connected to mine. And man, do I wish we had Indeed back then because we could have gotten much higher quality hires using Indeed. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more more visibility on indeed.com at indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash beyond. One of the things that I also like about the book is that living well, which really is the goal of productivity in my mind, that living well isn't just about ourselves. We start there. We start thinking about, you know, because we all do, we start from a a self view, but it's not just about ourselves. It's about other people, that other people matter, that living well is not just about ourselves, but our place in other people's lives as well. No, absolutely. I, I mean, this is one of the kind of side effect of thinking hey, the goal isn't my feelings of happiness. It's to to live well, to try to live a a good enough life, a decent life. As soon as you reframe it that way, you think, well, that's about responding to the world as best I can in the kind of ways I should, trying to figure out what to do. But in that framing, the world includes your life, but it evidently includes lots of other people and their lives too. And so it's very natural to think and right to think, okay, I want to 
treat not just myself, but other people the way I should. And that's a kind of framing of what, as it were, the project of self-help ought to be. If we thought in terms of living well, rather than thinking self-help is just about my feelings and my sense of happiness, it's, again, it comes with this idea of living well as a form of relatedness to the world and the recognition that relatedness to the world includes relatedness to other people. Mm-hmm. We mentioned infirmity a little earlier and, and disability, and I know that's one of the threads in the book. Um, we can jump back to that in terms of, I think that, and you state it really well in the book, that it's an opportunity. And actually, I'm glad we backtracked and then came back because now it's, it's, it's almost like seeing, I like that we're talking about films, by the way. It's like jumping ahead and then jumping, <laughs> have, we had a flashback and now we came back and we were just talking about how it's not just about ourselves. Well, that infirmity and disability can be places where we grow in terms of compassion. And it's not just for us, but also for others. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, the two things that I I think really connect to our conversation here. One is this idea we talked about earlier on about the fact that about pluralism, the idea that the world contains many good things. One of the ways to kind of frame disability, physical disability, at least in ways Mm -hmm. that, that help to indicate how it's compatible with living, living well. And and the, the kind of survey data suggests this, that people with localized physical disabilities are, are surprisingly able to come to terms with them. And one explanation for that, that I think is philosophically deep, is that the world has so many good things in it. There's so many different ways to find value in the world and live a good enough life that the fact that you don't have access to a certain range of them, it's hard because that's a challenge. But then there's always this huge range of other ways to find meaning and find value. And that people with disabilities typically are able to make that kind of shift. And it's not wildly different from a shift we all make when we find there are things we might want to do in life that we're not able to do. And then we think, well, okay, but there are other good things in life. And I do think the the other side of this that you pointed to that I think is really profound is the way in which I think it's not just me. I think this is a kind of very general experience that when you're dealing with something hard in life, so like for me, when I was experiencing, well, when I was coming to terms with the fact that I was I had a chronic pain condition that wasn't going to go away, you can oscillate between a kind of self-pity and a kind of empathy for other people. And it's not inevitable that this will lead you to be more empathetic, but it can, and you can sort of seize on those moments. So one more anecdote, which I remember very vividly at a certain point in the process, thinking I'm going to stop trying to figure out a cure for this it's just going to stay. Initially, and, you know, understandably, I think I was pretty bitter and angry about it. And I remember at some point sitting somewhere, just watching strangers walk by thinking, you don't know how good you have it not being in chronic pain. And then I thought, hold on, I have absolutely no idea what any of these people are going through in their lives any more than they have an idea what I'm going through. It might not be chronic pain, it could be loneliness or grief or loss, or it could be anything. And I think those moments are ones we can really seize on where our own experience of difficulty becomes a, a window into, in a way, kind of paradoxically, a window into the opacity of other people, that other people are going through difficulties that are not on the surface too. And I think, yeah, that, that kind of compassion is something we should try to leverage in ourselves. Well, speaking of loneliness, I know that's one of the other themes for the book or threads for the book is Again, it's not self-centered. It's not uh, loneliness. When when someone says loneliness, we often think, or when I think I'm lonely, or if I'm if I'm even self-aware enough to acknowledge I'm lonely, it's about me. It's about me not feeling like anyone's around 
to pay attention to me, to care for me, to appreciate me, to give affection, you know, fill in all the blanks there. But really, that the way out of it is actually to care about others. That's how we take the steps to get away from loneliness and grief is caring. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this is something that the both, I think, philosophical reflection on loneliness and also the social science suggests. So there's a lot of social science in which the way in which people most effectively get out of loneliness is by stopping worrying so much about their own need for friendship and relating to other people in a way that doesn't demand anything from them. It's just about acknowledging and recognizing other people, which, of course, is the very acknowledgement and recognition that we crave when we're lonely. We want to be recognized in a way that's not about getting anything from us, just as having value in ourselves. And I think that, you know, what that suggests is that in our experiences of loneliness, we are, we're responding to something pretty profound about our own humanity, namely the value of an individual's human life, the way in which we all as it were, deserve love. There's no, none of us are sort of worthless. And we want that to be recognized in us. But in order to be sort of framing our experience through that, we have to be thinking of other people in that way too. Part of what's amazing is how much even little moments of connection in which someone that are not about deep friendship already begin to give you the kind of recognition that you crave, the kind of acknowledgement you crave. So well, there's one study I, I talk about in the book where, and this seems like a nightmare to me, that people were at, the study subjects were asked to go up to a stranger on a train and ask the stranger something personal, to, to talk about something personal in their lives. And they had to tell the stranger something personal about their own lives. And A, the first surprise was, they, people were willing to do it. I mean, both the study subjects and the people they approached on the train mostly were just happy to talk. And secondly, that feelings of loneliness were significantly diminished, even by this brief moment of mutual connection that wasn't going to lead to friendship. They weren't going to reconnect with these people they'd wandered into on the train later. And I think that tells us something very deep about, about the experience of loneliness I can't resist one final reflection on this, which is about the sort of fallout of the pandemic. So I, I started writing the book before the pandemic. I wrote it, a big chunk of it, when loneliness was something that almost everyone was grappling with in some form. And one of the things that's happened even in, in the kind of ongoing fallout of the pandemic is lots of daily interactions that we, lots of things we used to do in person now we just don't bother or we do it on Zoom or we don't go into the office so much. And in some ways, there's convenience that comes from this. But I think it, we shouldn't underestimate how much those little moments of connection were quite deeply sustaining our sense of our own social reality and our own worth and our, our sense of connectedness to human life in general. So I think there's a there's a real challenge in this sort of late pandemic stage of an ongoing difficulty of loneliness that it's easy to not notice because you think all you're missing out on is, is these sort of trivial interactions, but trivial interactions turn out to be non-trivial basically. Yeah. It's funny because I think even without having, I'll call it traditional human connection, going to a public place where there are a lot of people, but even if you're not meeting someone there, but you're just like, you're out in a park, let's, let's put it that way. You're experiencing nature. You're, you're by yourself. You have solitude, but solitude in the midst of, a bunch of other people collectively gathering or not or going about their day, some people would say, oh, that feels very lonely. To me, I'm like, no, that sounds like something that it's just an acknowledgement that other people exist. They're doing their day. It's it's kind of, it's heartening in, in a way, I guess. 
Yeah, I think it can be. I think it, there's a sort of a way of experiencing that as a kind of mutuality, like we're in this together, we're doing the same thing together. So I think those moments could be ones of loneliness. But I think you're you're also right that it doesn't take a radical change in the circumstance, but maybe a change in how we experience it to bring out the the kind of latent connection there. Yeah. Well, and I can say that's not how I always feel. I think there's times where, yeah. no, I like, like some people will say, why are you going to the movies by yourself? Occasionally, that's a really fun thing to do, especially in a room where there's other people watching also. But other times it's like, Hey, let's go, let's go to a movie, me and others, me and my kids or my wife or, you know, friends, family, et cetera. So. The other thing with shared experience, when you said that, it made me think of, I don't know if you've heard of this site called Goodable. No, no. G-O-O-D-A-B-L-E. I'll link this up in the show notes too. I saw a passage on there where it said that a library in Denmark has started a program where instead of books, you can borrow a person to hear their story for 30 minutes. And it's called the Human Library. And it's, it's, it's designed to break down stereotypes and it's now branching out into like 85 plus other countries. I want to look into that, but that is another one of those things that kind of feels like it fits here in this conversation. It's really fascinating. Yeah. That, that they someone just finding out someone else's story is a kind of source of self affirmation too. That's really interesting. It reminds me that the other thing that, that I, I think this didn't make it into the book, but there's a guy. I think it's in San Francisco. This was pre-pandemic who billed himself as the person walker. So if you wanted, you could just go for a walk with this guy and he would just chat. I think he would just chat about whatever and you could tell him about what your day and he would tell you about what was going on with him. And that was it. That was, and, but nevertheless, it it really uh, made a difference to people who, you know, were feeling like they just, I mean, in a way, it's not surprising. A big part of why talk therapy works is the talking part, as opposed to any special expertise that your therapist has. So, you know, there are these, again, studies where they'll have someone go and just talk to an untrained person who just listens and is like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And they will get some of the therapeutic benefit of therapy. So I sort of get why the the person walker thing works, but there's something really cool about it just being, about the walking and the, the sense of being out there socially too, that maybe connects with the experience you were describing in the park. Yeah. One of the other things, and this, this fits squarely in the realm of productivity traditionally for what a lot of people consider that to be is this idea of failure. And I know, uh, you know, you talk about this in the book about how the narrative of a project driven life is, is how you put it. And I couldn't help but think, Oh, that just sounds exactly like how we, you know, we win or we lose and it's, it's binary and, it, and it's not necessarily that way. No, exactly. I mean, there's so two levels at which I think we can kind of we can really go astray in thinking about success and failure in our lives. One is by thinking of our whole life in terms of a grand narrative, like we're we're the hero of a Hollywood movie, and there's the big quest, and that's both risky because we might fail, but also risky because or just just misguided because thinking of your life in terms of one major undertaking, either a, you know romantic success or family or work, whatever it might be is just a way of, of blinkering yourself to all the other things that matter in your life, all the other little moments of success and failure and connection and so on. So I think there's a risk here in thinking of your whole life as a project that you can either succeed or fail in as if you're a winner or a loser. But even within particular projects, there's a shift I think is really important. And this is a thread that really connects my midlife crisis with the book on midlife 
through to the reflections on on the difficulties of life and life is hard is this shift from thinking of our activities as having value primarily as projects where you achieve something and thinking of our activities as having value in the process that's to say the ongoing engagement with something independent of whatever comes of it and you know it's not that it doesn't matter what comes of it often it does but that the value isn't just in what our activities produce, but in engaging in them, in that, that kind of what I call in the book more atelic, as in telos meaning end or goal, atelic meaning sort of disconnected from the end goal. That way of experiencing the value of what we're doing is, I think, a way to combat this excessively project-driven type A relation to the world. And I'm interested in how you think of this as connecting with productivity, because one objection people sometimes make is, oh, you're just suggesting we should kick back and not be productive. And my thought is, no, it's not about what whether in the end you're actually getting things done. The question is, where are you finding value? It doesn't mean you can't have a highly productive life. It's that you're not mortgaging the value of what you're doing entirely to its successes and failures. Yeah, well, and, and I think the thing is, is not to think about it as a binary thing where it's a... I'm winning or I'm losing. There's a couple different roads I can go here. One is there, you know, over time of talking with so many people about the word and the term productivity, there's people who just say, I can't have like a system or a setup or a, in other words, structure boxes me in that by building the structure, it boxes uh -huh. me in. So I'm not as flexible. It's kind of the difference between somebody who has a neat or a tidy desk and someone who has a messy desk and they consider those, you know, the only binary options. That's one of the thoughts my mind goes to there. The other is, is I, I think, you know, we're talking about failure. We're talking about, you know, again, a project driven life. We all want to progress. We all want to grow. We want to be, in other words, we want to be intentional and, Instead of, uh, you know, just kicking back, there's time and place for that. There's a time and place for, I'm going to use air quotes here, hustling for a, a brief period of time. You know, you pick up your pace. That's the, and that's the extent I go with using that word. But, um, I think it comes down to, remember, we were talking about the flow chart earlier. And I think in each instance that you're doing something, whether it's a work thing or a, a relationship or a practicing learning guitar or an instrument or, you know, some other skill that it's, did I practice today? And then the, it shoots you off in one side of things or no, then it shoots you off in another. And it's not that it's good or bad. It's just, that's the part of the path. And so thinking of activities you've chosen as maybe experiments and then what was the outcome and then taking that experience as earned collective knowledge for yourself for future choices. And, and that's way different than framing it as winning and losing in a competition with yourself or others, because we start to compare ourselves to others and we start to think we're losing compared to everyone. And that's just not the case. That was all wonderful. Yeah, I know. I agree with all of that. <laughs> and I think that this two things to pick up on. Maybe one is, I think being able to say it's not black and white because it's both. And I think is important to recognize yeah. that you can be invested in the process, but also care how things turn out that it, the risk is when you're, only caring about what gets achieved, but it's not that that you know you can you can that they're not incompatible. And the other, I think, has to do with a way in which when we start to think in terms of failure and success too much, winning and losing too much, it's not just that that's 
distorting in itself. It's also that the terms of success and failure are very often ones we are picking up from the society around us. That's to say, we're not succeeding or failing on our own terms. We're starting to compare ourselves to others by standards that seem socially salient. So the obvious thing is thinking in terms of money, that we're thinking, well, am I a success? Well, do I have more money than some other person? And you know, money is necessary for all kinds of things, and I'm not saying it's bad to worry about it. In fact, we often just have to worry about it. But I think letting the measure by which you define yourself as a success or failure be money is a mistake that goes beyond even just the mistake of letting your life be defined as a success or failure at all. So I think that that social context sort of controlling how we assess our own success and failure is a danger too. And I, I, the idea of being intentional, which is partly about deliberately asking ourselves what we value and not letting those standards be imposed from without, even if we end up agreeing with them, at least we've agreed with them reflectively. I think that's a, a, a kind of important idea too. I think the other thing that is obvious to me here is that there's a difference between the outcome-based focus versus the process, like you had said earlier. No, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the you know, if, you, if you're thinking about, for me, you know, just I'm my own most salient example. So you know, I think about my relationship to philosophy. One of the things that happens when you have an academic career is you shift from thinking, it's fascinating to think about these questions with other people, and I'd like to make progress with them, to thinking, Will I get tenure? Can I publish this paper in this top journal or not? In a way, those should be the the sort of incidental things, the side effects of what really matters, which is still engaging with these questions, teaching students, connecting with people, sharing ideas. And I think returning to that orientation where you say, I'm going to keep publishing, but the point of that is to maintain an ability to be actively engaging with ideas. That's what it's really about. I think that shift, which you know, was sort of important to my getting over my midlife crisis. I think people will find versions of that in their own work, that the sequence of projects can just get in the way of seeing what the actual underlying point of engaging with your activity is. Or if it's not work, it could be parenthood. And it's another case where parenthood is an atelic activity. It's not, there's no particular end point that you're trying to get to where you're like, I have now parented. It's done. It's a relationship. <laughs> I think some people wish they could get to that point, though. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally, you have moments where you're like, surely I could be done. But mostly what's happening is the day-to-day -day of parenting, when it's a grind, involves all the particular things that need to get done, which genuinely matter. They come to dominate your, your vision. And so you can't sort of you lose touch with the thing that really matters, which is that these are all forms of parenting. It's like, why am I rushing my kid to practice? Why am I getting lunch on the table? And, you know, why am I packing their bag for them? The thought is, I may or may not be making good decisions here, but this is what really matters is the relationship I'm engaging in with them. And that's the process I need to remind myself really matters. And if I could think of all these as subordinate to that and see what kind of changes that brings. I'd be seeing this relationship in the right kind of way. And that progress or growth or, again, ultimately living well, like we're talking about here, it's not just a byproduct of that. That actually is the goal. And then, like we said earlier, then the happiness follows as the byproduct. Yeah, right. So this is something that I think the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, I think, really got right, was that he says, look, the goal is living well. And living well is an atelic activity. I mean, his terminology is different, but that's the basic idea that living well isn't a thing where you're like, I hope I can get that finished as quickly as possible. Then I'll have lived well. 
as if the point is to, to sort of <laughs> you know, get life over as quickly as possible. It's an ongoing thing. And that that's the goal, if we have one, is to maintain the process of engaging with the world as well as we can. Yeah. And then things will come out of that that we hope will be good. We have limited control, but we have some control. And one of the things that may come out of that is feelings of happiness, but sometimes there'll be feelings of grief, but we'll face up to difficulties and there'll be negative feelings. And again, if we reframe them by asking these negative feelings, part of living well, is this because I'm engaging with the world in the right way? We'll be seeing it from the kind of proper orientation. And if they're not, then we can think, okay, I should, should not be caring about this. Why do I feel badly about this? It's irrelevant to whether I'm living well. I should just stop caring. And so I think this lens can can both be a way of reorienting our attention to what we're doing right and really appreciating it, and also sometimes give us an indication that something isn't going right. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. I think we can land the plane now. I think that this has been an, a very interesting conversation, and I think it's – obviously, it's an ongoing one for sure. Exactly. And any point of landing the plane, it's not about landing the plane, but we, we've got to stop at some point. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, we have to refuel the plane, and then we can get back on. So <laughs> Yes, exactly. Kieran, it's been great talking with you. I mean, I, I mean, seriously, I could probably keep going on and on and on. We We have not hit – all of the different threads and themes that are in the book, which is great. It just means they can dig deeper into what we already talked about and then also those other things that we didn't even mention. So is there any particular place you'd like to send people? I'll link up to everything in the show notes where people can buy it. So I'm on Twitter at Kieran Setia. That links to my website. I, I have a Substack newsletter that I'm, I'm is now something I'm trying to regularly do. But yeah, if you go to Twitter, the links are all there. Great. Awesome. Well, Kieran, great talking with you. I have a feeling next book, we'll just continue this conversation and, and hopefully chat in between time. But this has been fascinating and, and actually really, really fun for me. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. It's been great. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Kieran. I know that I did. It was great talking with him and reviewing the book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And again, if you're surprised by a philosophy book showing up in a productivity podcast, you shouldn't be. Philosophy and living well, again, tie directly into what productivity and the end goal of it and your definition of it should be at least partially about. So it is for me. I hope it is for you. If you found this conversation helpful or thought-provoking, I'd love for you to do me a favor, but also someone else a favor by hitting that share button in your podcast player app of choice. Share this episode with them. Let them know about it. Spark their conversation with you about this episode and this conversation with Kieran. You can also find the show at beyondthetodolist.com. And if you're not subscribed or following the show yet, to make sure you get new episodes, hit that button. Hit follow or subscribe wherever you're at in your podcast player app of choice or drop it in there. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening. And I will see you next episode. <laughs>